The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. All right, you can turn your Bibles to Romans 2, Romans chapter 2, and our text is verses 12 through 16. And so let's go ahead and read that passage. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. Uh, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. I want to begin today by telling a story about one of the teenagers we had in youth group when we uh, did youth ministry in Michigan. And uh, this teenager, he he was really a great kid, came from a great family, and uh, he was kind, considerate, respectful, really easy teen to work with. He knew how to have a good time, which is a good thing for a teenage boy. Uh, but he also knew when to scale it back, which is not always the case. And uh, most importantly, he seemed to really have a, a sincere heart for the Lord. And uh, because of that, uh, he was very burdened for his unsaved grandfather, that his grandfather would come to Christ. And so... His family had prayed for years that his grandfather would be saved and shared the gospel with him many times. And when this teenager was probably a junior or senior in high school, though, his grandfather became very sick and it was obvious that he was going to die. And so this family prayed that his grandfather would be born again. And yet uh, he ultimately passed away. And to their knowledge, he never trusted in Christ as a savior. And this teenager was absolutely crushed, and he began to ask some really hard questions, like, why didn't God answer my prayers? You know, my grandfather was such a good person, so how could God possibly condemn my grandfather to eternity in hell? Uh, Is God really good? And, And most importantly for our purposes today... Is God fair? How how could it be fair that God would let my grandfather go to hell? Those are really hard questions, especially in in such an emotionally charged situation as the death of a dear grandparent. And uh, and sadly, uh, these questions drove this teenager away from Christ. He stopped going to church and um, walked away from the Lord for a number of years, although Uh, remarkably, and and praise the Lord, that just a few months ago, he trusted Christ as Savior, and he was baptized uh, just last month. But but the questions that he asked are are common questions among believers and unbelievers alike. And they're really hard questions to answer. Some of you have had children and grandchildren or other people ask them to you. And, And thankfully, our text for today was written to answer one of these very important questions. Will God's judgment 
be fair? Will God's judgment be fair? So, so this is a valuable text. If you've ever asked those kinds of questions yourself, and it's also a really valuable quest, text if, if your kids or your grandchildren or someone you're trying to reach for Christ or just a struggling believer comes to you and says, will God judge justly? And this text also, you might have noticed, raises some really interesting questions surrounding the, the, the issue of the conscience and what is the role of conscience, what does conscience do and not do. And so we have a few very important and, and practical matters uh, that we want to address this morning. And I'd like to build our study of this text around two questions. The first question is, how will God judge? Now, now last week, uh, we, we saw that verses 1 through 11 first raised that issue of how is God going to judge, specifically at the end of time when we all stand before God and He determines whether we're going to be in heaven or hell for all of eternity. And we saw last week that, that Paul confronted two common assumptions among the Jews that were false. The first fa- common false assumption was that, that, for the most part, the Jews were righteous people. They were godly. And so a lot of them believed that they would be justified, that they would be allowed into heaven because of the good life, the righteous works that they had done. And so Paul responds in verses 1 through 11 by by confronting that and and demonstrating that they're not as righteous as they might think they are. They might look really spiritual. They might do all the things to appear godly, but they really weren't all that much more godly than the unsaved Gentiles around them. And then the second false assumption, which is especially important for our text today and really, uh, frankly, all the way down through chapter 3, verse 20, The second important false assumption was that God would favor the Jews at the final judgment simply because they were Jews. They didn't think that God was going to judge them by the same standard. They thought, we're the people of God. God chose us. God gave us the law. And so because of that, surely God is going to accept us into heaven. Even if we're not perfect, as long as we're not too bad. We got an in with God. We got a little favoritism. We got a little privilege. And so they believed that essentially almost every Jew was going to end up in heaven simply because of their Jewishness. But Paul asserted that God will judge all people fairly. He says in verse 6 that God will render to each person according to his deeds. And he says in verse 11, there is no partiality with God. And verses 12 through 16, our text for today, are intended primarily to develop that fact that there is no partiality with God. So so if you want to know the theme of this text, what it's trying to say, that's the main point. God will not be partial in His judgment. And he begins to build his case in verse 12 by asserting that God will judge all people based on the revelation that they have received. Now, Now, this is a really practical point because one of the most common objections that people have to Christianity is how could God condemn people who have never heard the gospel? How could God send someone to hell who doesn't know what what, what the Bible teaches and all that is contained therein? So people say it's not fair that God would judge them the same way that he judges someone like these Jews or someone in America who's had lots and lots of access to the gospel. Well, verse 12 says, 
that he's not going to judge them the same way. No, instead, he says, all people will be judged based on the revelation they have received. Look again at what he says in verse 12. He says, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, now I want to make an an important clarification here, which, which is that the law in verse 12 is specifically the law of Moses, right? That that God gave Israel on Mount Sinai. So Paul is specifically saying that at the final judgment, God will judge the Jews based on the law that God gave them. Here's what God told you. Have you kept it? All right? That's the judgment that he's going to give to the Jews. And, And so they'll be judged by their response to the revelation they had received. Did they believe it? Did they obey it? Or did they reject it? But the second half of the verse says that people with little to no access to Scripture will not be held to the same standard. They will not be judged by the law of Moses. No, instead, God will judge them by whatever revelation they have received. And, of course, we saw in Romans chapter 1 that God has revealed himself to all people in creation. All people know that God is real and that he is worthy of worship by what he has made in this world. And we're going to see in verses 14 and 15 that God has also revealed himself to all people through the gift of conscience. And of course, many people fall somewhere between that, right? You know, you got this guy that's, you know, lives in some remote village and, you know, in some faraway place that has no concept of the Bible. Then you've got people like the Jews or people, you know, that grew up in church that've got tons of access. Of course, lots of people fall somewhere in between. Maybe they grew up hearing Bible stories. Maybe they grew up uh, going to church a little bit. Maybe they've heard the gospel a couple of times. Of course, there's other unbelievers who've heard the Bible inside and out, and they know everything that's in it. But, But the main point Paul is making in this verse is that no one will be held accountable for knowledge they couldn't access. They will be judged based on the revelation that God has given them and they will be sentenced accordingly. Now, I should mention that that Paul assumes that that judgment is always going to end in condemnation, right? Because he says, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So we had a discussion on Sunday night uh, about this back in June that, that, that Paul is not saying here that anyone's going to get a free pass. They didn't have the Bible, so God's just going to let them into heaven. No, the assumption is is that they will all perish, that they will turn away from the revelation they've received, and they will not obey the Lord. But, but the point, though, ultimately, is that God's judgment will be fair. He will judge people based on the revelation they've received, and, and because of that, not everyone who is in hell will suffer the same level of punishment. There will be differing levels of punishment in hell, and Jesus makes that clear in Matthew eleven twenty one and 22. He, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Now, these are two towns in Galilee where Jesus had done a lot of ministry. All right? So he says, Woe to these two towns. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon. So Tyre and Sidon are, are Gentile communities where Jesus did no ministry. He says, If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable 
for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So, so he's saying they will get a lesser sentence because they had less opportunity to respond to the truth of God. No, the Bible never gets more specific than that. You know, so, so it's pointless to speculate about what exactly that means about levels of punishment and suffering in hell. And of course, we have to remember that hell is hell no matter what level you're in. But, but some people will suffer more than others. And what really matters is that whatever they suffer in hell will be perfectly just. They will have earned it. So, so our God is not some free-willing despot who judges and, and blesses on a whim. Ah, let's do this to this person. Ah, I don't really like that guy. Let's make his life miserable. God never judges more strictly than we deserve, though he oftentimes shows a whole lot more mercy than we deserve. And so any accusation that God is not fair that God is unjust in condemning someone is simply untrue. And, and, and for someone to say, no, that's not fair. I know better than God what is just and what is right and what he ought to do. Folks, we need to recognize just how arrogant and naive that really is. To think that we have a better read of what justice is than God has. So if anyone ever asks you about the justice of God's condemnation, take them to this verse. God assures us that his judgment will be just. And of course, that's a sobering reality then uh, for, for any people, for any unbeliever who's in this room today. Because the very fact that you are sitting in this room probably means that you have had greater access to the gospel than most people in the history of humanity. And it is a tremendous privilege for, for you to be able to not so much listen to me, right, but, but to listen to God's word, to rub shoulders with, with people who are saved. But that privilege also brings tremendous responsibility. And so if you have never received Christ as Savior, understand that you will be judged by the revelation that you have received including what I am saying in this sermon. It will factor into your final judgment. So do not reject the revelation that God has given you. Respond in faith and repentance. Take it seriously so that you will be in heaven someday. So, so in sum, verse 12 teaches that God will judge based on the revelation that each person has received. And then verse 13 adds, that he will also judge based on the response to that revelation. So look at what he says in verse 13. He says, It is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, now to us in this room, the first part of that verse probably sounds pretty obvious. Now we think, well, of course, just hearing the law isn't going to get someone saved. But we have to remember that that's pretty much exactly what the Jews believed. They believed that hearing, or, or you could say maybe more precisely, possessing the law was going to almost guarantee that they would be in heaven someday. But, 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 but Paul here responds that, that, that there are no privileged positions. There are no favorites 
at the final judgment. Now, now yes, it's true that God had favored the Jews in this life, and and Paul's going to talk about the blessings, the unique blessings God had given to the Jews when he comes to chapter 3. But he's very clear here that at the final judgment, there will be no favorites. And just possessing the law or hearing the law is not going to get anyone into heaven. And so as I emphasized last week, the same goes for anything that you might think is going to give you some favoritism with God at the final judgment. You know, there's not going to be, you know, like you go to the airport and there's like the, you know, the, the sort of the privileged lane to get through security because you've paid some extra money and you go all the time. There's no lane like that at the final judgment. You know, there's not like the, you know, the Baptist lane or the Presbyterian lane or the Catholic lane. You know, there's no lane for, for the people that grew up in Christian families and were part of churches for generations. There's no special line for, for a certain nationality or a certain social status. No, verse 13 is very clear. The doers of the law will be justified. Now, now like I said last week, that statement again might strike us as a bit problematic, all right? Because... But, and so we have to understand it in the context of Romans. So specifically, Romans 3 through 4 are adamant that no one will be justified. No one will, be, will earn their way into heaven based on their works. So Romans chapter 3, verse 28 says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So, so the only hope anyone has of being in heaven someday is that they are there through the blood of Christ on the basis of His work on the cross, and, and which is applied to them by faith. That's the only way anyone's getting into heaven. But an important aspect of genuine conversion, genuine salvation, is that a true believer will live a transformed life. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says that when someone gets saved, their, their, their old life is buried with Christ, And we are raised to walk in newness of life. So when I get saved, God changes who I am. And so because of that, chapter 2, verse 13, accurately describes those who are in Christ as doers of the law. We are people who obey God sincerely from the heart. Not perfectly, right? We're all still sinners. But Christians are people who can be described as doers of the law. And Paul says, these people will be justified at the final judgment. So Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And again, the point there is not that doing the will of the Father earns you eternal life. But, but a doer of the will of the Father is synonymous with someone in whom Christ lives, someone who has been born again. And, and folks, all of our labors, all of your effort to pursue godliness, all your struggle to overcome sin, all your resistance to the flesh, it will all be worth it when Jesus says, welcome into the presence of my Father. But I want to emphasize again that merely being around God's truth is not a harbinger of God's favoritism. Now, just having the law or hearing the law is not going to get a single Jew into heaven. And sitting in this church will not get you into heaven either. 
You know, hearing me or someone else preach God's word will not get you into heaven. You know, just because your picture is in our pictorial directory, or just because your family are members of our church, just because you are a member of this church, does not guarantee that you will be in heaven someday. We might have misjudged you. We might have thought you're a genuine believer when you're not. So so none of those things are going to give you a free pass at the end. And I want to reiterate the point I made last week. You know, that that just because you live a comfortable life, you know, you've got money in the bank and you've got a good family and life is good, that doesn't mean that God accepts you either. You know, uh, Jesus made this clear in Luke chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. He's speaking to some Jews there and he says, Do you suppose that those 18 men on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? Now, now we don't know the details of the story here that Jesus is describing, but but apparently uh, 18 people in this town of Siloam, a tower fell on them and crushed them and they died. And so what Jesus asks is, does that mean that God was displeased with those 18 people Well, he was certainly pleased with the people in Jerusalem who were living in comfort. Is that what we should conclude? That the blessing of God, the ease of this life, is is a symbol of God's acceptance, and hardship in this life is a symbol that God rejects you. What's Jesus saying? He says, no. He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so the only issue that will matter when you stand before God someday is if you are in Christ by faith and you've lived a life that reflects genuine conversion. And so you must respond to the gospel you are hearing this morning with faith and repentance. There's no other way. So so don't be content to just sit there and and hope that, that you've got some in with God. Yeah, I mentioned last week, I've heard people say things like, you know, me and God, we got our thing. You know, I talk to him, he talks to me. And they've got just this kind of like imaginary idea of how they've got this favoritism, this in with God that they're sure is going to get them into heaven someday. And do not make that mistake. God does not play favorites. No, no, if you have never trusted in Christ, the only way you will be in heaven is to be saved in Jesus. The only way that you can withstand the judgment of God is if you are covered in the blood of Christ. So if you've not received Christ as Savior, please be saved today. So so in sum, verses 12 and 13 explain how God will judge. He will judge fairly in keeping with genuine fruits of salvation. And I'd like to frame verses 14 through 16 with a second question. And that question is, are you really sure that God doesn't privilege some? You know, and again, like, uh, I didn't quite know how to put this well, but but the Jews were so convinced of this that God was surely going to let them in because they're Jews. And, And so what Paul does in verses 14 through 16 is he answers this fact. He reaffirms this fact that God does not play favorites. He says in verse 14, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, 
and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now, now there's a lot to digest in these verses, and, and typically when we talk about these two verses, we just immediately jump to conversations about what is the conscience and what does it mean that, that the law of God is written on people's hearts and, and all those various things. And, and we're going to get to some of that, but we have to remember that Paul's primary concern here is that the Jews were banking on their Jewishness. They're standing as God's chosen people, as, and, and the fact that they had the law as guaranteeing that God was going to let them into heaven. They thought they had a major advantage over all other peoples. But Paul counters in verses 14 and 15 that having the law is not as big of an advantage as the Jews thought. Because he says, God has given his law in some respect to all people, not just the Jews. All people have some access to God's law through specifically the gift of conscience. So the Jews are not as unique, not as privileged as they thought they were. Now, now before we go on, I want to emphasize two distinctions that are really important for understanding these verses, all right? And the first distinguish, distinct, distinction we need to make is we need to distinguish between the law of Moses and God's you know, overarching moral will. So, so the law of Moses, which is you know, talked about a lot in Romans chapters 2 and 3, is, is the law that God gave Israel on Mount Sinai, right? It was Israel's constitution. It defined Israel as a nation. It made them God's people and, and set them apart from the world, all right? And it was in force from Mount Sinai until Jesus rose from the dead, and more specifically, Pentecost. So we are no longer bound by the law of Moses. Romans 7 says that it is dead, all right? But, but, what, but, but that does not mean that God has no, no law that governs over humanity. God has his moral will that, that never changes because the character of God never changes. So, so, so we have to understand that distinction. It's helpful for understanding exactly what's going on in this passage. I think it's also important to distinguish between special revelation and general revelation. All right? So special revelation is God's direct verbal communication, and especially Scripture, all right? So it's special because not everyone has it. The only people that get special revelation are are apostles or prophets, people to whom God speaks verbally. And as well, those who hear or receive or read what those apostles and prophets have written for us. And so today, the only special revelation we have available to us is this book, This is God's special revelation for us. So if you have your Bible, you have special revelation. But general revelation is available generally, right? That's pretty pretty complicated. Or or to all people. So so that means that that all people have access to general revelation. So we saw in Romans 1 that God has made himself known generally generally. In creation, that that we can see the character of God and we can know something of who he is through the things that he has made. And and again, Romans 2 says that he has also revealed himself generally through the gift of conscience. So, So not everyone has the law of Moses. And today, not everyone has the law of Christ as revealed in the New Testament. 
But everyone does have general revelation and conscience. So, so with that said, Paul asserts that God has revealed parts of his will to all people. He says again in verse 14, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves. And you know, the evidence for this verse is all around us. You know, there's no denying the fact that people are inherently moral beings. And that, and that, that really is a, probably the aspect of the image of God that sets us apart from the animal world more than anything else. So we alone distinguish right from wrong, and we alone make moral judgments. Now, animals don't do that. They, they, don't, they have no concept of, of right and wrong or, or morality like we do, and they don't experience guilt and shame for sin like, like people do. You know, if you doubt that, you know, watch a dog or a cat play with its prey before it dies. I mean, they have no concept of cruelty or, you know, there's no ethical dilemma in, in that animal's mind as it watches this, this prey suffer. They're just having a good time. But we do. You know, if a person does to another person what our cats will do to a rat, we consider that person a psychopath. And the medical world is going to say that that person's mind is malfunctioning. And, and, and so... And we could give loads of examples to, to demonstrate that. There, there's no debate that people are uniquely moral creatures. That God has put his law in our hearts in a unique way. And so, if you want to see a, a naturalist squirm, just ask them sometime, where did morality come from? Where did morality come from? Now, a few years ago, I did some, some study on that subject. And, 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 and when... When evolutionists try to explain the, the evolution of morality, I mean, they, they've got no idea where to turn, how to explain the development of morality. You know, by far the simplest explanation of morality is that a moral God stands over creation, and he has written his law in his hearts. He has made us moral creatures because he is himself a moral God who makes distinctions between right and wrong. And because of that, verse 15 says that, that the Gentiles, or, or people with, with, you know, primarily here, people with no access to God's word, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. So, so as much as people try to run from it, you know, I mean, the, the secular person wants to say that there is no such thing as objective morality, that morality is a social construct. Or, or we just make up rules based on what serves people the best. Of course, they say all that, but they can't, they can't consistently live that. I mean, they, they say it's all subjective, but then they really want you to buy their morality, right? And they'll condemn you if you don't buy their morality. So, so they want to believe that it's subjective, but, but they all know and they live in such a way as it's not. And no matter how hard he may try, he can't fully escape the conviction of his own conscience and the accusations of his own thoughts. You know, he says there, I mean, look at what he says in verse 15. He says, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Yeah, you know, and again, it's, it's fascinating to watch that conflict. You know, the, 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 the naturalist, he, he wants to believe that, that there is no ultimate standard 
He wants everyone, you know, and he wants to believe that, that it all is just mush and it doesn't matter. And yet he can't get away from it. His thoughts, his conscience, it accuses him. He realizes that he is not doing what he ought to do. And he knows that he is liable for the judgment of God. So in sum, Paul's point in these two verses is to say that God has revealed his will to all people. All people have, have, have the law of God written on their hearts. Now, now we do need to make clear that, 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 that our conscience is not a perfect guide or a complete guide. So 1 Corinthians 8 verse 7 uh, talks about Christians with a weak conscience, which means there that their conscience is not fully informed. So, so because my conscience feels bad about something doesn't necessarily mean it's right before God. And just because my conscience doesn't feel bad doesn't mean it's okay. You know, and as well, uh, 1 Timothy 4 verse 2 says that if I continually reject my conscience, if I continually sin and rebel against God, that my conscience can be seared or it can be calloused so that I am doing sinful things and my conscience does not push at my heart the way it should. Because I've sinned against my conscience so many times that it's like there's a scab over the top of it. So, so the influences you allow, the thoughts that you ponder, the choices you make, all can dramatically shape your conscience either for good or for bad. So, so no man's conscience is infallible. And neither is it complete. I mean, yes, our conscience uh, gives people a certain level of knowledge of God's will. You know, like we know that moms should take care of their babies and we know it's not good to murder and we know you shouldn't steal from other people. All people understand that, whether or not they always admit it. But, but you will never arrive at the detail of, of God's will as revealed in Scripture through your conscience, right? Your people's conscience never arrives at this complete point. But, but all that said, the main point of our text is once again that God has revealed his will to all people. God has shown to all people that he is a moral God and they are accountable to his morality through the fact that he has written his law on their hearts and through the, the conviction of their conscience. And therefore, because of that, verse 16 adds that God will judge all people by the law that they have received. And verse 16 says, On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So, so this verse transitions from the judgment of my conscience in this life to the judgment of God at the last day. And I do want to park for a moment on, on the phrase, according to my gospel. Because Paul has already said that people will be judged by the law they have received. So, so he's not saying that, that people with no access to the gospel will be judged by the gospel. All right? That's not the point. No, no what he's saying here is, is he's pointing out that an important aspect of the gospel, the gospel declares that God is going to judge all people. And, and I think that's a point that's just worth emphasizing because, you know, if we were to just to play, have you pull out a pen and paper and you know, write down what are the essential truths of the gospel that you need to share if you're going to lead someone to Christ. And I doubt that many of us would write down coming judgment as an essential truth of the gospel. But Paul says here that it is essential. 
that, that warning people about coming judgment, framing gospel conversations, not around how good you are, how wonderful you are, but the fact that God is God and you are accountable to God is, is an important way to frame every evangelistic conversation. I mean, it's not pleasant. It's not going to win you a ton of friends. But people need to know that Jesus is coming to judge. So make sure that, that you are ready to stand before him. And so that said, the day is coming when all people will take their stand before the Lord. And the Apostle John describes his vision of that day in Revelation uh, chapter 20, verse 12, which says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And so just like our text, John emphasizes the fact that God will judge all people according to their deeds. And he's not going to do so based on some foggy memory of what people did. It's interesting that he says here, the books will be opened. You know, think about the fact that God has a detailed record of everything you've ever done and not done. Every thought you've ever thought. It is all recorded in the books. And of course, God's mind forgets nothing. He knows it all. And, and, and John says here that God will judge every person based on their deeds. And so combining uh, that text with our text, you, you could put it like this, is that God will, you know, on the one hand, God will, in one hand, He will hold up the law, the revelation that each person has received. Specifically thinking for some at the, at the most bare minimum conscience, with other people all the way to a pretty deep knowledge of God's Word. So, so on the one hand, here's what I told you about my will. On the other hand, here's how you lived your life. And let's compare the two. Where did you measure up and where did you fail? In Romans 3.23 is clear that no one will pass that test. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, yes, it's true that, that people do instinctively the things of the law, verse 14 says, at times. But the reality is, is they fail much more than they succeed. And therefore, chapter 3, verse 19 says that at that day, every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. There won't be anything unfair about that day. No one will be able to complain about God or you know, say, I want to make an appeal to a different judge. No. God will judge justly. And sinners will always reject whatever law God gives them, and they will be judged by the standard they have received. It will be a fair judgment, and it will be followed by a fair consequence. Which brings me back to Paul's primary point, which is that God will not show favorites. You know, the Jews won't get a pass because they're Jews. You know, there's no Baptist, Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist pass. You know, there's not an American Patriot pass or a, uh, you know, a, 
a, a rich person pass or, uh, or anything else, a family heritage pass. Everyone will be judged justly. But, but if that's so, I'd sit there and think, well, how in the world is anyone going to escape? How could anyone possibly stand up to the justice of God? And, and, and Romans 3, 21 through, 20, or through uh, 31 is going to tell us that the only one who can stand up to the justice of God is his own son, is Jesus. And, and when Jesus died on the cross, he died to take our sins out of the way so that we could be placed in Christ, so, so that our sins could be removed in his blood and that we could stand under the perfect righteousness of his son. And if God judges me at that day based on how I've lived my life, based on the revelation I have received, I'm a dead man. But if God judges me in Christ, then I am secure, I am safe, and I have nothing to fear. And Romans 3.22 says that this righteousness can be yours through faith in Jesus Christ. So, so all you do to go from being judged based on my sin to being, my sins being judged in Christ is to believe on Christ, repent of your sin, receive Christ as your Savior. And when you do that, the Bible says you are united to Christ. He becomes your Savior and you are forever safe from the judgment of God. And so if there's anyone here today who has never done that, you know, maybe you've just never really worried about the judgment of God. Maybe you've been counting on your family heritage or, you know, your good life or the things you've suffered or all the good things you enjoy or whatever it is. And, and you think whatever it is is going to get you through that day. Understand the only way you can survive the judgment of God is in Christ. And do not leave today without knowing that you are ready to stand before the Lord. You know, I mean, I mean think about the fact that this sermon could either be a means for you to suffer worse punishment because you rejected the word of God or it can become a means of life where you understand the gospel and are born again. And so if you have not received Christ as your Savior, please receive him today. And for those of us who are saved, I hope this passage will better equip us to share the gospel. Now, people know they're accountable to God. You don't have to convince them of that. Now, they may try and deny that. They may try and run from that fact. But, but they know that they are accountable to God. They know God, God's law is written on their hearts. And they know that they fall short. They, they may want to tell you they're a good person, but, but God says their conscience is accusing them constantly. So appeal to their conscience and lovingly warn them that they will be judged by the law they have received. You know, don't be a jerk and, you know, don't scream and yell and, you know, make sounds of people suffering in hell. You know, but just tell them the truth of God. You know, warn them compassionately, lovingly, but firmly. And then point them to the only hope of salvation, which is Christ and Christ alone. Folks, let's be bold with that message this week. I mean, when we share the gospel, we are not peddling snake oil which is ultimately useless and, 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 and no one actually needs. No, people need the gospel. They need to be saved. 
And the gospel is true and perfectly consistent, and it is powerful to save. So be bold for your Savior, and love the sinner enough to point them to the hope of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word, for its power to convict. And Lord, I pray for any here who have never received Christ as Savior. God, I pray that today they would come to the end of themselves, repent of their sin, and be gloriously saved. And and Father, I pray that you would please do that in any who who need to receive Christ. And Lord, for those of us who are saved, God, I pray that we would rest in the goodness of God, that, Lord, we would trust your justice, and I pray that we would be bold in taking the gospel to those around us. Lord, help us not to be afraid. Help us not to worry that people are going to think we're lunatics. They may call us lunatics, but they know that we're not because they know they have sinned against you. And so help us to be bold. Help us to be courageous. And Father, we pray that you'd use us to lead people to Christ, to see people born again by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.